and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. My name's Adrian Goldberg. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say and reporting it without fear or favour. This time, Westminster's authoritarian creep. And no, I don't mean Michael Gove. We're talking about the government's taste for ever more repressive laws, including a clampdown on protests. A protest can take place just as long as it's not too noisy, just as long as it doesn't cause too much nuisance, just as long as it doesn't seriously annoy anyone, just as long as it's not too near to Parliament. In other words, protests can go ahead just as long as they, uh, they don't do what protests are meant to do. Plus, after a year of lockdown, what can we learn from the government's handling and mishandling of coronavirus? We've got an exclusive interview with Michael Mansfield QC, who is chairing the People's Inquiry into the pandemic. We've been hit harder than any other European nation in the first and second waves, yet we have, or we have had, the best public health system in the world that's been obviously eroded seriously. And so we need to ask the question. How has this come about? So people want answers to that. First, though, just a reminder that there's no billionaire backer behind the Byline Times and we're not in hock to any corporate interest. We are funded by ordinary people who want to see the government and other powerful interests held to account. A £36 subscription buys you our brilliant monthly paper, the Byline Times, It also helps to support this podcast, Byline TV, and our fantastic news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's where you'll find subscription details as well, at bylinetimes.com. And if you've already taken out a subscription, thank you. Draconian, chilling, alarming. Just some of the words used to describe the government's proposed curbs on the right to protest detailed in the policing, crime, sentencing and courts bill, currently making its way through Parliament and affecting England and Wales. If the bill becomes law, it will give police the power to impose a start and finish time on demonstrations and set noise limits. Intentionally or recklessly causing public nuisance will be criminalised, so no more occupying public spaces or handcuffing yourself to the railings. Even causing annoyance, however that's defined, could lead to you getting a conviction. Damage a memorial, think the statue of slave trader Edward Colston in Bristol, and you could be jailed for 10 years. Now the government says its intention is to balance the rights of protesters with the rights of others to go about their business unhindered. It has in its sights the likes of climate campaign group Extinction Rebellion, which in April 2019 occupied five key thoroughfares in London, including Oxford Circus. One of Extinction Rebellion's co-founders, Claire Farrell, has been taking me through her life of protest. (laughs) Well, I guess one of the first acts of protest that I made, that I can remember, was definitely within my university department when people were variously telling me in particular the lecturers, that nobody was really interested in the environmental impact of fashion, and that was my subject. So I put signs up around the department and started telling people about the gross mistreatment of animals, the impact on the environment through chemicals and poisoning of people through the cotton industry and all the rest of it. There's plenty to choose from. From there, I joined a group called the Space Hijackers, which was 
born out of the kind of inspiration, I guess, of the situationist artists. So it's very much about like creating disruption and spectacle in public space and questioning consumerism and politics and lots of other stuff to do with the economy. So what did those protests involve? Some of them that I went to and was involved in were things like parties on the circle line when it was a circle, which was really beautiful and they were really fun. A very famous action, I guess, in, in, in the context of the hijackers, which I didn't attend like the main event when everybody got nicked, was we bought a tank to take to the DSEI arms fair to pretend to sort of auction it off outside the Excel Centre to draw attention to the fact that the arms fair was happening. But then a group of people took it to, I think it was the G20 perhaps, but anyway, a group of people took it out on the streets during a major major protest and they, they were all arrested for impersonating the police. And at the time I was quite grateful actually that I wasn't there because I didn't really feel ready to be arrested. But obviously since then I have been arrested several times. <laughs> So how did you progress from there? I guess I took a bit of a break from activism in that way of not really being present on the streets and not doing lots and lots of stuff in public space whilst I was trying to build various sustainable and ethical fashion brands and teaching in that area and working in fashion. And then in 2017, I was working with a friend on an art project, which was about embodiment of positive resistance and myself and a friend Miles Glynn who's an artist started to make yeah what felt like an urgent response to the deterioration and the context I guess of social and political and cultural life in the UK and that was kind of pre-Brexit and pre-Trump and we were thinking god everything feels quite fucked and then we were painting and decorating jackets and making patches that you could wear and running participatory art workshops where we were trying to get people to engage with critical texts and thinking about situating ourselves in the now and what's going on and what can we do. And in that time, he sent me a message saying, have you seen this guy who's on hunger strike at King's College over divestment? And having been paid attention to the climate change story for some time, I thought, shit, like, why isn't everyone on hunger strike? That's makes sense. So I went to meet Roger Hallam, who's now my friend and somebody that I helped to start XR with. And he was trying to persuade them to divest from investment in fossil fuels. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of universities, pensions, various things that require kind of long term, like solid investment have been obviously really, really closely connected up to the fossil fuel industry, because up until recently, it, it looked like that was a that was a good long-term investment. The divestment campaigns have been relatively successful and his work at King's was successful on that front. So I went and met up with him and we started doing direct action together. And that was the dawn then of Extinction Rebellion? Yeah, for me it was, yeah. And there was a kind of decentralised network of people already working called Rising Up, which was involved people on all different types of campaigns all over the country. And so it was interesting. I worked on things in London because... Roger was here and he was doing his PhD here. So we did stuff here, but lots of people were doing loads of different stuff all around the UK. And then we kind of collectively, people agreed to start a rebellion. And so that's what we did. And a couple of years ago, perhaps the most significant protest that Extinction Rebellion has staged, at least in terms of disruption, was a virtual encampment 
around Oxford Circus. I've witnessed that myself and traffic couldn't go either way up and down one of Europe's busiest shopping streets. It was a party for those involved, obviously very aggravating for taxi drivers, people trying to use Oxford Street for other purposes or as a thoroughfare. Were you part of that? Yeah, I was. And obviously, I mean, that involved a huge number of people. And I was quite shocked by the turnout, I guess. And we went from showing up to a protest where we were going to block a road or spray paint a government building in protest where, you know, I'd be impressed if 12 people showed up. And we went from that to using certain like processes to do momentum driven organizing to kind of build the movement to just every single time we put something out on the street, being totally amazed by the number of people showed up. So the first thing was the Declaration of Rebellion in October 2018. I had at least five times more people there than I expected. Then we shut five bridges on the same day, on a Saturday. I was also shocked by the number of people who showed up and it went from there. And so when we were in Oxford Circus in April 2019, yeah, I was I was completely awestruck by by what was taking place, to be honest, yeah. How many times have you been arrested now? Five only. <laughs> have you been convicted? Yeah, the last time I was in court was actually not that long ago. We were found guilty of obstruction of the highway. And that case was only taken to court in early January. And it was from late 2019. So yeah, cases are taking a very long time to make their way through the courts at the moment. Does having a criminal record worry you? Uh, Not as much as what we're protesting against, no. (laughs) I'm quite well aware that this is going to probably affect my ability to travel. It may affect my working prospects and who knows what else. But I think if you hold in perspective the impending end of the world as we know it, it's not that big of a deal. And we and we live particularly as a, I recognise my own privilege in this country, but I also recognise our global privilege in the UK. You know, we've had a very safe place to do this kind of work compared with a lot of people all over the world who are constantly losing their their lives, their livelihoods and their security to stand up for the rights of Mother Earth and the environment. And so I, I recognise that privilege that I hold and I'm I'm trying to use it well, basically, and I'm willing to take the consequences because I, I can't imagine that the consequences are worse than living with the idea of not having done anything. The day-to-day disruption that you caused in Oxford Street attracted a lot of criticism for Extinction Rebellion. Ordinary people trying to go about their daily business, many of whom I'm sure will be sympathetic with your overall aims. How do you respond to those criticisms? Well, we did try really hard at the beginning to make sure, for example, that we went to areas that would be disrupted and give people prior notice. So before the April Rebellion, there were signs and posters that were shared around and flyers that were shared around with businesses and people that were working in the area to try and like let people know that something was going to happen that might be a little inconvenient. We also took a controversial approach among the activist community to engage with the police ahead of actions. So we did that to try and make sure that they could make alternative arrangements for emergency services and so that everybody would have a good heads up 
we've worked really hard to try and make sure that there are people on the ground with an understanding of blue lights policy of trying to let through emergency services through the spaces that we that we occupy and also of having de-escalation teams on the ground and a deep deep commitment to non-violence to make sure that we're taking responsibility for the space that we create and if there are issues with members of the public and and heated moments with people on the street that we are equipped to try and engage with that and deal with it ourselves we're not relying on anybody else to to take the heat out of that for us but rather to engage with the people ourselves directly so we've tried to do it in a in a very responsible way but you acknowledge in that it can't help but be massively disruptive to people's lives well this is going to sound really cheesy, but like the disruption that's coming to people's lives when somebody like David Attenborough or Mark Carney, even like when these people who are not eco nutters or whatever, when they're out in the public saying civilization could break down, the systems that support life on earth could break down, and that will undermine the economy and destroy everything that we've built over the last however many thousand years as humanity. I really think that we have to try and hold in context what's at stake here. That said, I do think that, you know, it's really, really important that people understand the humanity that is embedded in our movement and that we are doing this really as a last resort and that we don't want to disrupt people's lives in an immense way just for the sake of it. But when when it seems like there's, it's not just that there's like no action from the government, there is active work to make it worse you know they are putting the foot firmer and firmer and firmer on the accelerator on this issue and so given what we know and the fact that that constitutes crime against humanity as far as I'm concerned what's taking place at the moment politically then what does a proportional response look like and I guess that's what we were trying to ask when we set up XR and in some ways creating the disruption you know we used to say it was like like an immune response like socially and culturally, you need to create some heat so that so the attention can go there to do the healing on the problem. And that's how I see nonviolent civil disobedience in some ways. And you obviously believe that it can make a difference, that it can change people's minds, that it can change government's minds. Yeah, well, I hope so. Otherwise, I wouldn't be be doing it. I've got much better things to do with my life than like sit in jail cells and criminalise myself, you know. But I guess there's a long history of nonviolent action, which is at once kind of proactive and not passive, which I think it's often mistaken for, that nonviolence is passivity somehow. It's not. And where you would where you would go out and say, like, we have to do something to, to create a display that shows the injustice that shows up the violence embedded in the system. You know, we need to do something that draws that out so that we can show everybody what's going on. And Byline Times is one of the only places, I think, where you can get real investigative journalism in the UK now, right? Like the public are finding it very hard to get truthful information. There's a really, really big crisis of trust, in my opinion, and watch this bill and the Tories kind of overreach on their sense of having total power and taking the UK towards a sort of authoritarian direction. The way I think to, to get that conversation going is to, is to embody something that, that causes that conversation to be a national conversation and for people's minds to go to that place.
How do you think your activism will be impacted by the new crime and policing bill then? It's a good question. I don't know yet because oftentimes, you know, people have said, well, there's issues with certain kinds of public order sections and things that the police can put in place to try and create a sense of fear around around coming out to the protest because of the personal risk involved. And we know that for a lot of people in exile, that's not necessarily a deterrent. So I don't know whether this bill will actually be as much of a deterrent as the state thinks it will. What it might mean is that more people face tough sentences. And I don't know how that will play out through the courts. But if it does have a deterring effect, and if it does create less opportunities for participation, let's say, particularly by those people who usually feel less ready to go out and take the kinds of risks that myself and other people have, that has an impact on stifling freedom of speech and holding people back from coming out and being seen and heard when they have a democratic right to do so. So I'm actually more worried about the infringement of it on our democracy as the UK than I am on the impact it will have on me personally, you know. Claire Farrell from Extinction Rebellion. Now, alongside the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, the government has been piloting another controversial piece of legislation through Parliament, the Covert Human Intelligence Sources Bill, generally known as the Spy Cops Bill. Now, this provides a legal framework for undercover operations by the police and security services. The government says it provides protections, including the right to life, and prohibits torture and inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. But critics say that the law, in practice, will amount to a licence to kill for agents of the state, and is further proof of a drift towards repressive laws. To discuss these two bills, I brought together Byline Times Europe and Social Affairs correspondent Sean Norris, Mike Schwartz, a lawyer with Hodge, Jones and Allen, who has defended numerous protesters, and Labour MP Richard Bergen, former Shadow Justice Secretary, who talked first about the proposed restrictions on protests. I think there's a very worrying and very concerning authoritarian creep, authoritarian drift happening. I think we're entering a situation where the government is very aware that with the economic situation that's developing, they will be deciding to go ahead with um, measures, provisions, policies, decisions, which people won't like very much. And so at the same time, uh, I think they're, they've taken the decision to restrict people's ability to campaign and protest against those forthcoming decisions. And that's really, really concerning. So you think this is actually a calculation that they will introduce policies which will be unpopular and anticipating that they're seeking to clamp down on the protests that might ensue? When you look at what the Conservatives have done since 2010 in terms of restricting the right to strike, they didn't make it illegal to go on strike, but they made it very, very hard. They put a number of hurdles in place. And with the police crime sentencing and courts, but you see exactly the same thing in terms of the right to protest. A protest can take place just as long as it's not too noisy, just as long as it doesn't cause too much nuisance, just as long as it doesn't seriously annoy anyone, just as long as it's not too near to Parliament. In other words, protests can go ahead just as long as they, uh, they don't do what protests are meant to do. And in the 1980s, we saw it as well in the 
political climate we had then, there was an authoritarian drift under the Thatcher government. And I think we're seeing that now in the 2020s as well. Absolutely. I think it is a really concerning creep of authoritarianism. As Richard says, you know, protests are meant to be noisy. They're meant to be disruptive. That's how you get noticed. In the early 2010s, I organised a series of Reclaim the Night marches and we had drums, we had dancers, we had chants, we had loudspeakers. Of course, we were disruptive. We probably annoyed people. The people we definitely annoyed were those who wanted to protect violent men and protect a patriarchal society that allows for men to be violent against women. So, you know, as soon as you start saying that protests cannot be annoying, they cannot be noisy, they cannot be disruptive, the people who you are actually protecting are those who uphold the status quo that is causing harm to those who are actually doing the protesting or the movements that they're protesting on the behalf of. There is an argument, though, isn't there, Richard, that ordinary people whose lives are disrupted by protests like chance will welcome this bill. They are the people who are inconvenienced. They may have, in some cases, sympathy with the aims of the protest, but may still want to go about their daily business without interruption. Well, I think most people, when it's explained to them that this is actually about cracking down on peaceful, non-violent protest, will be really disturbed. You know, people in this country value very much the liberties and freedoms that we enjoy in this country. And that people want to protect those things. They think that's what distinguishes us from other countries. So I, I think the public will be very disturbed by this. And that includes the majority of the public who've never been on a protest march. I mean, how could anybody think that it's fair, reasonable at all, that under the new rules, under the Police Crime and Sentencing and Courts Bill, somebody could get up to 10 years, 10 years in prison for behaviour, non-violent behaviour on a protest. And that's longer than the sentences that most men convicted of rape ever get. You know, that's truly chilling when you think about it. And I don't think that people, regardless of their political allegiance, would really support that. Mike, how does the balance of power stand at the moment in a protest between the police and the protester, in your view? The background, obviously, is that peaceful protest and protest is very democratic. Anyone can participate and it's a way of expressing themselves and getting their point across to the public directly or to the media or to government or business that they're opposing. And that's the starting point. They don't have access to uh, inside access to government or ministers or meals or lobby groups or payments or contributions to funds. And I think that's a really important understanding that we need to have. And against that background, the police have the cards in their hands and with this proposed new legislation we'll have even more cards both to prevent and disrupt protest and also to scare people off as well. It's a further worrying erosion of the right to protest which is part of a pattern but I think people may not be cowed by this where they feel strongly about the issues that they're protesting about. My understanding, Mike, is the law as it stands does allow the police to intervene on a protest if there is a risk of serious public disorder, if there's a risk of damage to property, or if there's a risk of serious disruption to public life. So it's not as though the police don't have significant powers already. Yes, obviously it depends on what sort of protest it is, and therefore which powers apply. But under the um, the existing Public Order Act, you're right. The police do have powers to impose conditions 
on assemblies and processions. They can ban them in some circumstances. And if individual criminal acts take place, they've got the power to arrest and detain and prosecute people. So there are huge powers under the Public Order Act and elsewhere. What the legislation, the theme of the legislation is, is it's, it's reducing, lowering the hurdles which the police have to pass and which courts have to pass when arresting people, when disrupting protests, and if the courts need to consider whether to find someone guilty. It's just watering down the protections that protesters have and should have, I think, under the European Convention on Human Rights. And generally, actually, generations have had this right, and it's been further eroded by this legislation. The powers are there already. And what's going on really is, I think, that the police see protests as a threat. They should be treating it as something they need to facilitate, but they see it as a threat. And where it gets out of hand, or even where it's successful, they see that as an affront to their sense of power and their monopoly of power. And one should see this proposed legislation as quite a personal attack by embarrassed police against a successful and growing movement. The government seems to be suffering from schizophrenia. It's using and trying to bolster up the criminal law against protesters and dissenters generally, on the one hand, while trying to evade scrutiny of governments through changes to judicial review, to reviews of the Human Rights Act, to attacks through the media direct on judges. They seem to have just an inconsistent and deliberately inconsistent view of the law, international law, domestic law. It won't apply to them, but they think it should apply heavily to others, people that they disagree with. And Sean, you're particularly concerned about the impact of the Policing and Crime Bill on women. Yes, absolutely. One organisation called Women in Prison called the bill misguided. And one of the things that they're raising is the fact that there's been a huge amount of energy, campaigning energy, protest energy, looking at the issues around sentencing of women prisoners and the fact that many women in prison are there for non-violent offences. They may be there for not paying council tax or not paying TV licences, which are against the law, but perhaps not best resolved by putting women into prison. To the government's credit, they have spoken up about these issues and have looked at kind of sentencing and talked about or given good talk about different ways of dealing with women who break the law. But of course, this new sentencing bill risks undoing a lot of that work. And as um, women in prison put it, it risks sweeping more women up into the criminal justice system, particularly women from black, Asian and minority ethnic communities. The other issue, of course, is that many women in prison will already be victims of male violence. They may have had um, experience of domestic violence or sexual assault or sexual abuse. So again, when looking at these issues of criminalising victims of male violence, while at the same time, the government is giving a big talk about how the police crime and sentencing bill is going to tackle male violence and put these people away for long periods of time. So I think, again, we're seeing this real contradiction in the way that the government is approaching policing and sentencing and not really listening to the experts who are the women's organisations who work closely with vulnerable women in order to come up with solutions that both protect women, ensure justice and make sure that women aren't criminalised or aren't victimised when they've already been victims of male violence. I think we've got to be clear that democracy isn't just about voting every five years in a general election or more frequently in recent years. Protest, peaceful protest, is a fundamentally important part of our democracy. And if the government puts so many hurdles in the way of peaceful protest, if the government criminalises many protests uh, in that way, then it's a real attack 
on the very fabric of our democracy. And at the same time, I'm very concerned to see the government's proposals on putting all sorts of hurdles in the way of people voting, you know, the requirement for ID uh, when people go and vote, you know, presenting a passport or whatever else, putting blocks in the way of people exercising democratic rights that many of us have taken for granted for many years. It's truly alarming. I also want to talk, Richard, about the Covert Human Intelligence Sources Bill, or the Spy Cops Bill, as it is more colloquially known. And this covers the role of police officers, security forces, and their agents, whoever they may be, acting undercover with the aim of stopping crime. Now, my reading of this bill is that with the appropriate authority, it allows those police officers, those security officers, and their agents to commit grievous crimes, including murder, rape and torture. Yeah, well, I was amongst the Labour MPs who opposed that bill at both the uh, second reading and the third reading, because we have grave concerns, you know, it allows undercover state agents, you know, to potentially commit murder, torture and sexual violence. And these things, you know, aren't something from a, a film, uh, a spy film, they're from reality. You know, and that's why uh, Theresa May's even organised an undercover police public inquiry, which is shortly about to resume. And I've heard from so many victims who've suffered as a result of the appalling behaviour from undercover agents, women, victims of police racism. People got to remember, for example, that the, the family of Stephen Lawrence was spied upon. And that's why, as I say, even Theresa May has uh, seen this reality in organised undercover police public inquiry. You know, it's examining very serious allegations of systematic abuses by undercover policing units developed over 40 years against justice campaigns on the environment, for example, even on Labour MPs. So we felt it was the right thing to do to oppose that bill. And it was, it was a shame the Labour leadership didn't do the same. Of course, the government says that the bill has to allow for the possibility of undercover agents carrying out harmful acts because failure to do so might risk exposing them to the real villains, as it were. And your own party leader, Keir Starmer, who is a human rights lawyer, says he welcomes the new law because it gives a framework for officers working undercover and he takes comfort from the fact that agents wouldn't be able to breach someone else's human rights. We weren't convinced by that. People who have themselves suffered from appalling behaviour from undercover agents weren't convinced by that and campaigning organisations and civil liberties organisations that weren't confirmed by that. And just the other day I organised well, the other week I organised in Parliament a discussion involving MPs, members of the House of Lords and people who had suffered from appalling behaviour from undercover agents. And we were very surprised indeed when none other than Norman Tebbit turned up at this Zoom meeting that I'd organised. We hadn't been expecting that. And Norman Tebbit boasted, it wasn't a confession, he boasted at this meeting, and people were very surprised that he was so open about it, that as Margaret Thatcher's uh, Secretary of State for Employment, he regularly received on his desk reports from Special Branch on the activities of trade union activists, including uh, even where they went on holiday. And he explained as well uh, that he worked closely with 
right-wing leaders from trade unions uh, in terms of monitoring left-wing trade union activists. He said this as a boast. And I think that shows, and this isn't a figment of people's imagination. This isn't some conspiracy theory. This is how the establishment has operated in the past and how it operates now. And the idea, the idea that we would support allowing this to be worsened in law beggars belief, to be honest. And Mike, you've had involvement with some of the victims of the undercover policing scandal, which is the one that Theresa May set up the inquiry to investigate. But you were there as this story started to come to light. Yes, that's right. I mean, at the moment, I represent uh, 100 of the 200-odd activists who are called participants in the inquiry. And those include the activists who uncovered Mark Kennedy, exposed him as as a police spy in about 2010, which started the process of the unravelling, or rather coming to the public domain, of these terrible, egregious acts by undercover police. Uh, It started with the collapse of a a major Crown Court trial, and as Richard and and others know, it's led to allegations that the Stephen Lawrence campaign was spied on, that women were abused against their knowledge, that there were major miscarriages of justice, and so on. It's been going on for at least 50 years since this new this squad was set up in 1968. And it's a real lesson, not just about the past, but for the future. And in particular, as Richard says, the, the nature and mindset of, the, of government, which is if you can get away with it, then try it on. And what's happening really is um, we're moving from the Wild West to the Stasi, Wild West in the sense that unregulated undercover police have been able to do what they want. And now with this new bill, it's going to be set in stone in regulations. But just because it's set in legislation doesn't make it better, quite the opposite. Because the bill is so sweeping in the powers it gives to the police and those who supervise them, real lack of judicial supervision and so on. All it is is rubber stamping a terrible process. It's interesting you say that, Mike, because Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, said that he didn't like things happening in the shadows. And he argued, even as an opposition leader, that he felt the new law gave a greater transparency to the use of these undercover sources, be they police officers, security agents or people working on their behalf. Well, it's transparent in the sense that you've got a bit of legislation which we can all read, but otherwise it's completely hidden. The police are doing things by definition covertly. It's been authorised covertly. They're given massive powers to do terrible things, murder and and torture and mayhem. And the scrutiny is all in-house. And we've seen from the uh, Investigatory Powers Tribunal and from RIPA, the other piece of legislation on this, that no one really has any confidence either that the police will or have been behaving correctly or that their supervisors will follow the law, or that there'll be any proper supervision which will see the light of day. And that's why I say we move from the Wild West to the Stasi. And Sean, in some cases, women have been victims of undercover policing. People have had relationships with people who they believed were fellow activists. They've had children, in some cases, with people who they believed were fellow activists. There may be an argument that we need some form of undercover policing or covert surveillance of really dangerous people. But in many cases, these were just ordinary activists whose lives were turned upside down, even destroyed. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the sort of concerning things about the last couple of weeks is is that rather than focusing on rebuilding trust from the police and particularly between the police and women, we've seen this very adversarial, aggressive attitude coming from the police, both at the Clapham vigil, but also coming from the government's defense of some of policing techniques. You know, women were let down by those situations. They were abused in those situations. And now we're hearing the government say that they want to put plainclothes police officers in clubs to help keep women safe. Women don't feel safe with plainclothes police officers staring at them in clubs. You know, we have this legacy of undercover cops using their power and abusing that power to to harm women. And we need to really think about how do we start rebuilding trust How do we start having open conversations about what happened and how to move forward from it rather than kind of pushing these regressive and aggressive ideas about policing and women's rights? Richard, on a final note, I know there's been suggestions that Keir Starmer has been calculating his stance in relation to these bills on how it would play in the so-called red wall of traditional Labour voting seats. And Diane Abbott, the former Labour shadow Home Secretary, has suggested that there shouldn't have been that calculation, that these are bills that Labour should have outright opposed right from the start. The Labour leadership would be making a real mistake if it buys into caricatures of what voters in so-called red wall seats believe. I represent seats that voted overwhelmingly to leave the European Union, so-called traditional Labour seat where I'm from uh, in Leeds East. And of course, in Yorkshire, you know, we don't really need lectures about what the establishment can do, what undercover police can do. Just look at what happened at Orgrave. You know, we're supporting the Orgrave Truth and Justice campaign. Look what happened to the striking miners. Look what happened at Hillsborough. People remember these things. So I would urge the Labour leadership not to buy into some simplified, inaccurate caricature of the beliefs and principles uh, of people uh, in Labour voting constituencies uh, like my own and others uh, in the north of England. Richard Bergen with Mike Schwartz and Sean Norris, who has penned some stonking stuff for the Byline Times in recent months. If you want to help fund her excellent journalism and this podcast, here's how. Just take out a subscription to our monthly paper, which costs £36 a year. You get more information at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now, we've just passed the first anniversary of coronavirus lockdown. And although the government is resisting calls for a public inquiry, now is not the time, they say. The pressure group, Keep Our NHS Public, has set up a people's inquiry. They've drafted in celebrated barrister Michael Mansfield QC to chair it. I asked him, wouldn't a public inquiry be preferable? It has not been understood. I listened to the BBC News today and there were various pundits, one of whom, I think it was Neil Ferguson, was talking about the need for an inquiry now set up in the next few weeks. I'm sorry, I don't think anybody understands what's involved here. A a judicial public inquiry has a role to play. It normally takes a minimum of a year to set it up. So even if Boris said now, oh, yes, 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 we'll have an inquiry. He could say, oh, well, I want, to, I want to start the wheels in motion 1st of June this year. Well, that's fine, but it won't happen then. You've got to find a High Court judge. 
you've got to find a venue that's big enough, several venues, different parts of the country maybe. Then you've got to get lawyers on board, a team of lawyers to do the research, find the witnesses, find the documents before you have a single hearing. You're never going to get it inside a year, probably two years. And then the hearings, the ones I've been in, have lasted two years, three years. So that's added on, that's five. Then he's got to write a report. That's another year, that's six. All I'm saying is, come on, get real about this. It's fine to have what I call an academic inquiry, which can and often does reveal all sorts of truths we need to know about. Accountability, sometimes. Truth, yes, it's important. But please understand, it's quite different. A people's inquiry is happening right now. We don't have the same powers as a government-led inquiry would have. I can't force a witness to come. I can't force the Ministry of Health to reveal government plans. And that is a problem, obviously. We've invited them. Perhaps they'd like to voluntarily cooperate. Anyway, we'll wait and see if they do that. But the fact is we're getting on with it. And the assembly of witnesses is impressive. There are citizen witnesses, those who've been bereaved and part of the justice campaign, and they want the other kind of public inquiry as well. But also there have been professional witnesses from the medical profession. They are questioned in an organised way by a barrister lawyer. I chair a panel. We listen carefully and we're going to bring out a report as soon as we've heard all the evidence. And the evidence can be submitted either in writing or it can be spoken. The procedure is unique. There isn't another inquiry going on like this. And it's, there's never been one that is concomitant with the event. Because we're going to forget all these things unless it's put on record now. I mean, today or yesterday, Boris is saying, oh, there'll be a third wave here washed up on our shores because there's one in Europe. Well, he may be right, he may be wrong, but big questions arise. How do you deal with a third wave? Are we going to do it as we did with the first and second, which wasn't exactly impressive? So it's learning the lessons and applying them now. So I've taken a bit of time, but it needs to be understood. Do I take it from what you've said that you are coming from at this from a, a critical viewpoint, though, it, it seems to me that you are your starting point is to suggest that government has made mistakes that need to be rectified. Well, as a chair, I mean, I obviously can't formulate a final position, but it's fair to say that the genesis is that the public and the medical profession together are very concerned about how this has been handled. And I'm going to summarize it in one sentence. We have the highest death rate in the world, and we've been hit harder than any other European nation in the first and second waves. Yet we have, or we have had, the best public health system in the world that's been obviously eroded seriously. And so we need to ask the question, how has this come about? So people want answers to that. And from that point of view, then, this seems to me to be an holistic inquiry, that you are looking at things more broadly than just the simple handling of the pandemic, but you're looking at public service cuts, you're looking at privatisation, issues surrounding the NHS before the pandemic, but which may have been factors in the pandemic being so problematic. Well, I think this isn't just about jabs, this isn't just about lockdown, it isn't just about shutting frontiers. I put it this way, that before this time last year, a pandemic on a big scale or an epidemic was a known, and this has to be rammed down politicians' throats. It was known. 
They even practiced for it in 2016. And I now discover they've been on the news. Somebody said, oh, oh yeah, we were fully aware of a pandemic back in 2005. Well, fine, if you were aware of a pandemic, there are a number of questions that arise. You don't just say, oh, well, we need some extra beds and some protective clothing. No, it goes far beyond that, because if you're going to get a pandemic, it doesn't matter what the virus is. The scale of a pandemic is such that all aspects of life are going to be affected. So what you have to prepare for, I think, and these are the questions we want to ask is, did anybody consider how schools were going to survive? How were you going to regulate it? That jobs were going to survive or not? And how are you going to support people, particularly through mental welfare, over the fact they haven't got a job? They may never get a job back. Their businesses may fold. They haven't got any money. They're going to food banks. This is far beyond just the provision of medical supplies. And so the question, which applies not only to the NHS, which was severely undercut, but large swathes of social services, local authority. So who was preparing for this? Answer, so far, nobody. Obviously, your findings will be made public. Have you got any confidence that the government will listen? Has there been any engagement from ministers? No, there's no engagement so far. They have been given notice that we're doing it. We would like them to participate. The governments either dismiss or they sneer or they, you know, we can't be doing with that, you know. But of course, that doesn't make any difference to the object of the exercise. And what I found is quite interesting. And it happened in the Lewisham Hospital case. And that is, it's not just this inquiry. There have to be campaigns, people asking questions. So it's part of an array of pressure points on the government. I have no faith in Parliament. You watch them. There's only about three people sitting in the chamber anyway. And you haven't got an effective opposition, I'm sorry to say. So therefore, the only way change comes about is because ordinary people say we've had enough. And I think what happens is that in the end, and this happened with another inquiry I had, a government wouldn't admit to listening, wouldn't admit necessarily to reading. But actually, by word of mouth, we discover that they have been influenced and without wanting to recognise it, they make changes. But of course, they want to take credit for it as though it's theirs. I don't mind, as long as the objectives or some of them are implemented. So I don't expect any of them to engage with us. If they do, that's fine. I would like them to, but I'm afraid expectation has been soiled in the past. You know, I'm ready for that. Have you heard anything so far in the inquiry that has startled you, surprised you, shocked you? Oh, yes. The first witness was Joanna Goodman. She's um, one of the lead voices for Justice for the Bereaved. And one of the accounts she told was of her father who died and that there was a, a notice came to him, I think about seven days afterwards, suggesting that he self-isolate. And the stories we've heard about 111, where basically the people who are answering the telephone, the operators are untrained. And in one case, a person stayed at home and died instead of going to hospital, because that's what they were told. Of course, mistakes can happen, but more often than not, because it's all done in a rush. None of this need have happened in this way. If you are planning for a pandemic, you have people trained and ready to do the task. So those personal stories. And of course, we've heard a lot from experts in relation to dealing with the social infrastructure, areas that are vulnerable already, economically, socially, vulnerable. So they're the areas where the rates of infection are much higher. And of course, that's partly to do with the fact that they had been run down for decades. And so looking at 
and the social support and the social circumstances. You're living on the 18th floor in a two-room flat, no garden. You're a single parent, two, three kids, and you can't go out. Your job you can't go to because you can't do it remotely and you've got very little money. I mean, what is it like? It, it's an absolute nightmare. And, I, and so I think, you know, looking at that, that's the side of this, which is much broader than the, just whether they're going to get infected. And also, you know, people working on the front line as well. So it's these are the things that you're sort of half aware of. But when you're actually listening to somebody deposing these matters in a fairly schematic way, it's deeply, deeply troubling. And I, I thought I got past being shocked at any inquiry and what you discover, but I'm afraid it never does. And it's it, this one is so far reaching. I don't suppose there's a family in the United Kingdom untouched by what's happened. So that, that's why we're performing, I think, a public duty that no one else is. Michael Mansfield QC and that People's Covid inquiry is ongoing. You can watch their proceedings online and they're open to more submissions as well. So if you've got a point of view or an experience that you want to share, go to keepournhspublic.com to find out more. That's keepournhspublic.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg and you've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our brilliant monthly paper, The Byline Times, which pays for our website and this podcast. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. See you next time.